Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Another episode of the Music Matters podcast where we talk about music and things of that nature. It's been a little bit of a minute since really my last episode, and that's just because it's just like things have just been getting in the way. I've been getting off work super late at night. And so, like, for example, on Friday, got off of work 10, 20, 10, 30 p.m. And that's kind of when I was supposed to do it. But I had already decided to see Oppenheimer opening day. I bought my Friday ticket to see it. Full well knowing at 10 o'clock p.m., not a.m., p.m., that I was going to be essentially out and about until 1 o'clock in the morning like I'm back in college doing a bunch of debaucherous things. Uh, they say that there's nothing good that happens like after midnight, and that's a lie. I went to go see Oppenheimer at 10 o'clock. I got out at 1.30. I got, I think, back home at like 2 o'clock in the morning. It was glorious, but I've just had so many different things specifically work kind of get in the way of just the podcasting schedule where I just literally get home at like 10.30, 10.40. I kid you not. It's been pretty hectic. So we just haven't had an episode over the last couple of weeks. We, 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 we will talk about Oppenheimer. Today we're going to be looking at Speak Now by Taylor Swift and also, oof, gosh, <laughs> I'm watching Formula One right now and Formula One is just another thing that kind of that kind of got in the way. <laughs> Yesterday of me recording this podcast, I got home again super late last night and I just was like I'll take a couple of hours. I'll take like a nap for a couple of hours. I'll come back on the podcast and then we'll record it and that didn't happen. Or technically it did. I went to sleep at like one o'clock or something like that and then I got up at like four. So I'm on very, very little sleep. And then I've been kind of just looking up some stuff, kind of doing some work. Not even work, but just kind of managing some stuff over the last couple of hours. And now I'm recording my podcast, this episode of the podcast. But we'll listen to music. Well, not music matters. We'll, we will listen to music. We will listen to and kind of discuss Taylor Swift's newest album or newest re-release of one of her previous albums, Speak Now, as well as we'll talk about Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers a little bit over a year after its initial release because I have some thoughts. First, I want to get through Oppenheimer a little bit because I saw it in Friday, on Friday, and I was like that meme of Drake and Josh when Megan goes to see the demonizer, or not sees the demonizer, but she rides that roller coaster, the demonizer or whatever it's called. And she's just like, her mind is blown. She looks like she's like seen some shit. Like that was me after seeing the movie. I get there at 10 o'clock or really 10.30-ish. I'm booking it. It takes me like nine minutes to get there. I'm really cooking my tires here, so to speak. And, or not really, but <laughs> I'm like, I'm not. I'm, I, was, I was like, literally, as I got into my car, just driving away from work, I was like, I'm Max Verstappen in a Red Bull. I'm like a kid in a, you know, I'm like a kid when it comes to just fantasizing about certain situations. And no, I was not. I was in a, was in a, <laughs> I was in a sedan. Oh my God. 
but I got to see Oppenheimer on Friday. It was like 10.30. The movie started at 10, but there were 20-something minutes of previews. I walked in looking like an oddly shaped man because I was wearing my Dodgers varsity jacket. Go Dodgers, by the way. 10 runs. Excuse me. And like six innings against the lowly Texas Rangers. And let me say something else about the Dodgers. I haven't really spoken that much about the Dodgers. I'm a casual viewer. I love the Dodgers. I love baseball. But um, there's been a lot of chatter about Shohei Otani leaving the Angels this summer, or technically this fall, or whenever free agency opens for baseball, because he wants to win championships and things like that. He just wants to win. He's on a sub-500 team. Shohei Otani is literally one of the greatest baseball players to ever exist, essentially. And so Shohei Otani, like people have been linking him to New York because New York can't hit at all whatsoever. Uh, not Alex, excuse me. Aaron Judge is now out, or he has been out, I think, since playing the Dodgers. Oh, yeah, he like ran into a fence. When the Dodgers hit a homer or whatever, and that's and I think he got concussed, and then something else happened, and then he's he's been hurt for like I think a month or two or something like that. And the Yankees don't have a hitter. People have been linking Shohei Otani to the Yankees, and in all honesty, I'm not gonna lie to you, I would not be surprised if Shohei Otani comes to the Dodgers. If Shohei Otani comes to the Dodgers, and we get one of the greatest pitchers in MLB, and Shohei Otani, and one of ooh, that's that girl from yesterday. I'm watching again. I'm watching a. Uh, what is this called? The uh, like the build up or the warm up or whatever it's called for the Hungary the Hungarian Grand Prix. Literally, as soon as the podcast is over with or during the podcast, I will put up the deuces and I will be out and and I will watch the, the Grand Prix. Anyways, yesterday. Lewis Hamilton gets pole position. Lewis Hamilton, potentially the greatest race car driver ever. It's pole position in Hungary, essentially two years after his last pole position, pole position being first place in a Grand Prix. And, I mean, everybody has just been excited for him today uh, because he just deserves it. He's worked so hard. He's in a terrible car. I, re I remember I was watching. I don't watch the interviews that much. By the way, the interviews for Formula One, ironically enough, are much better there's significantly more information that's discerned from the drivers and from the teams in Formula One because the media members actually know what they're fucking talking about. But there was this interview. This little girl was interviewing Daniel Ricciardo, this little British girl, and she was so adorable. She was interviewing Daniel Ricciardo, another Formula One driver, and as she is interviewing him because, you know, drivers during qualifying, you get... You can, you can get out and qualifying can still go on even when you're not actually driving. This British girl who's kind of, I guess, an affiliate of Sky Sports interviewed Daniel Ricardo and had one of the most adorable reactions to Lewis Hamilton getting on pole position. I mean, she was squealing. She was excited. She was cheering. It was, and, and it's just like they, they showcase off, uh, Danica Patrick, Nico Rosberg, and somebody else, I forgot his name, trackside, and with her own umbrella, because she is such a star, she is so important to the grid, 
the little girl I think is right. I don't. I have no idea what her name is. But the girl is like right there, right next to them with her own pair of headphones because she has young developing ears. Unlike every other old person tra sitting trackside. Actually, Ted Kravitz actually has some headphones in. I guess you know uh, everybody else just doesn't mind losing their hearing. You know, besides Ted Kravitz and uh, the superstar. But I thought that it was so adorable. Oh my god. And hilarious. And just, oh, so heartwarming. I'm so excited for today's race. Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen. Oh, gosh. I'm so excited. So very excited. Anyways, <clears throat> what was I talking about? Yeah, like, see how distracted I was with Formula One? This weekend's race is going to be so awesome just because of how, of just the implications. Lewis Hamilton potentially the greatest race car driver ever going up against Max Verstappen, pretty much the current just man to beat in regards to professional racing and Lando Norris. Like Lewis is Lewis somehow, some way in the worst car out of the bunch, out of the three cars, the Mercedes, the Red Bull and the McLaren was able to by a couple of milliseconds to let you know how close this car was, qualifying, excuse me, was yesterday. He was, I think, a thousandth off, or he was plus a thousand, or minus a thousand, excuse me, to Max, Max Verstappen. That's like 0. 0.00 seconds off of Max Verstappen, or technically faster than Max Verstappen. It was significantly closer than people expected. Or not even closer, but the fact that Lewis was able to out-qualify the McLaren, which is a better race car than the, Mer than the Mercedes, and the Red Bull, which is a significantly better race car than both of those cars. The fact that he was able to out-qualify both, and his teammate, George Russell, came in 18th place. Let me just say something really, really fast here, okay? A lot of people, yet not yesterday, last year were like, huh, maybe Lewis should have retired. He sucks. He's in a Mercedes. Why isn't he qualifying better? And it's like, it turns out, Lewis was in a more experimental car than George Russell. Everybody was like, why is George out-qualifying Lewis? And then it's just like, they finally kind of get some things in order, and what a surprise. Lewis has had a significantly better season than George Russell in a crappy car. Granted, both of them have been driving that crappy car for the better part of two years now, and they've both done an exceptional job. Lewis has done better, though. Sorry, just really juiced up because way too many people were like, oh, Lewis Hamilton, he sucks. He, he only can drive the fast cars, and it's just like his car's a shitbox. What do you want him to do? He's been, like, Lewis Hamilton has easily been just, he's, he's I, I love Lando Norris, and I think that Lando has outperformed the McLaren pretty much for the last uh, specifically last year and this year he's taking advantage of it actually having some race pace but Lando has been one of the um has been a driver that's just outperformed the car that he's that he has had and he finally seems to have had an actual decent car right now Lewis is another driver that has also outperformed his car because his car is an absolute shitbox now all that being said I finally got all that out of my system with that being said, oh gosh, I mean, before I just go on a rant and talk about Formula One and all this other good stuff, just got to move off of Formula One. 
and back to Oppenheimer, right? So Oppenheimer comes out Friday. I get my tickets in the morning. I'm super excited. Race over there like I'm Max or Staffing in a Red Bull, or at least I think I did. And I get there 10 minutes late, and I'm a little bit bummed out by it because I'm like, oh, man, I don't get to see the start, things of that nature. But my, my, uh, what is it? What is going on? Oh, they have, like, all of these kids doing this, this, like, media thing for some weird reason. I have no idea why, if I'm 100% honest with you. But they have, oh, my God. I mean, again, the girl that was interviewing Daniel Ricardo, they have, like, all of, they have two sets of kids. They have, you know, all of, they have some kids, right? They have, like, some kids over there in one section. And then they have Superstar, the girl that gets her own umbrella. The girl that gets exclusive interviews with Daniel Ricardo. They have her off to another side because, again, superstar. Back to what I was saying I've, about Oppenheimer, right? The Oppenheimer, I get there in time, and I'm just, I'm sitting down, and I remember Christopher Nolan. He was talking about the film. He was talking about the movie, and because Christopher Nolan somehow, someway doesn't use fucking CGI. Like, the things that that dude does in movies is, like, insane. The scene in The Batman or The Dark Knight where, they, I mean, this is just, this, this is something that sticks with me to this day. This is an almost 20-year-old film. The scene that sticks with me from that movie is the chase scene with the Batmobile and uh, the Joker. And it's just... It's fucking incredible. It's one of the greatest race sequences I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, just from the Batmobile literally getting blown up to the Batmobile then turning into the Bat Cycle to then Batman flipping the truck over in a city street, flipping it over. And it's just like he did all of this shit. He blew up the truck. He blew up, every, like, he flipped the truck, he blew up the Batmobile, he turned the Batmobile into the Bat Cycle, and then blew up the Batmobile. Like, all of this stuff is just incredible to me. It's incredible, I, I, just an incredible director. And then with Oppenheimer, he, he talked about how, with some of the explosions, with some of the effects, he had it on, like, a microscopic level. And he, like, recorded things on a microscopic level. Like, sometimes when some of the scientists were talking about physics, they would have these, these, um, these like, visual effects. They would have, like, these visual images. So that way, or these, it would cut to, like, these, um, these shots of, like, these explosions and of these microscopic images to kind of, like, drive home some of the physics that they were talking about. And, I mean, some of the shots were just beautiful. The detonation, you could, I mean, it's, it, it's, you can't recreate the definition, but the artistry and the attempt of the recreation of the imagery was just, uh, of the, um, of like the, uh, the Trinity test, I think that's what it's called, was just incredible to me, is incredible. The lead up to that uh, detonation or to that scene was just also incredible and impeccable. And the thing about the movie that just got me was just how well Christopher Nolan was able to dramatize everything without over 
dramatizing some of the uh, the themes and things within that film. And I remember there's kind of this like there's kind of the, this um this pushback against the movie saying like Christopher Nolan is trying to uh glorify um I think his name is Joseph R Robin uh Joseph R Oppenheimer they kept on it's either John or Joseph hold on what's his name what's his name Julius or jo it's Julius Robert Oppenheimer but everyone referred to him as Robert Oppenheimer they used his middle name instead of his excuse me instead of his first name and so in regards to this film right a lot of people have been saying like look this is all the terrible stuff that happened <clears throat> um in regards to Los Alamo uh Los Alamos I think that's what it's called the kind of city that or technically it was kind of like a town that they made in the New Mexico uh the New Mexico uh desert where they essentially just robbed the indigenous people of their land and then they hired the men and then they didn't give them lead suit like they did all of this terrible stuff did the film cover any of that stuff no they didn't because it was about Oppenheimer but I think there's been kind of this weird and by the way all this stuff is bad and in with these types of things it's just like you don't have to tell me that there was bad stuff that was done because I know that there was bad stuff that was done but Here's the thing about the film. Does the film glorify Robert Oppenheimer? To some degree, yes, because they kind of showcase him losing his security clearance kind of as like a bad thing. But also, or more specifically, that he was supposed to fight the security clearance. But in a lot of ways, they kind of show him losing his security clearance as kind of this like thing that, thing that probably needed to happen because well actually you know what i'll say this in the film if if people's conclusion from the film before they watch the film that the movie glorifies robert oppenheimer they are wrong if they think that the film glorifies how good oh yes it's great it's good it's great that you know um that the h-bombs and the new and not the nuclear, but the hydrogen bombs that they used against the Japanese to not only kind of like kill Japanese soldiers, but also civilians. If people think that Christopher Nolan glorified those uh, those just bombings, that he was just like, yes, this is a good thing, they would also be wrong. Christopher Nolan does such a great job of objectively showcasing off Robert Oppenheimer's. Um, perspective on the matter of not not Robert Oppenheimer's perspective, but just the perspective of uh, of kind of the use of these weapons and kind of this interesting concept of scientists that really are are kind of like that really aren't necessarily so that aren't soldiers. They aren't soldiers. They're not using these weapons. Or they're not scientists to build weapons. They're, they're scientists trying to find advancements in their respective fields. In physics, in, you know, astrophysics, in quantum mechanics. And Lotto's in this TV show, Gronish. Damn. 
That's tough. I'm like, cut, I'm like, cut back to, to Lotto. I'm watching, <laughs> I'm watching a Formula One. I like, that's obvious. But I was like, they put up this, this ad for Grownish, the final season, and Lotto is in it. And I was like, cut back to Lotto. Cut back to Lotto. I want to see more Lotto. Damn. That's tough. Sorry. Back to Oppenheimer. But again, like, there's been criticism about Robert Oppenheimer and, and the things that the government did in order to get this land to essentially, if you don't know who Robert Oppenheimer was, he was essentially the head of the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project was the secret uh, government uh, operation. There we go. That built the atom bomb. I don't think, I always get the two confused. The hydrogen bomb, I think hydrogen and atom bomb are synonymous because it's like the splitting of an atom and the atom I think is an hydrogen atom. Regardless, he was the head, he was the project manager essentially of the Manhattan Project, the operation that built the atomic bombs. And so Christopher Nolan, does he talk about how this land was stolen from them? No. But I think what he does a great job of showing kind of the masochism of Robert Oppenheimer because he realizes when he created that nuke or that atom bomb, when he made it and when it detonated in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he realized the absolute horrors and terrors that he has unleashed upon the world. And kind of this masochistic view of the world that he now has, right? Like when you watch some of the actual Oppenheimer interviews, he has this like stare. He has this like stare where he's like looking off into the distance, like he's seen some shit, and he has because he realizes like just how terrible it is that he now has created this weapon. In the movie, there is this scene where he's at this rally. After he's at the rally in Los Alamos, where uh, the the community that's been there, all of the scientists, their wives, their kids, all of these people are are there, and he like kind of in this PTSD form. He he constantly remembers the stomping, uh, and and kind of this, but he doesn't remember it in like, yay, this is exciting, and yay, this is joyful. He remembers it when he's getting again not deposed, but he's on this council and he's trying to fight for his security clearance but he um he remembers this cheering and this stomping and this applause not as this joyful uh memory this happy memory but of this like ominous and haunting just terrible uh, uh thing or the sound and the scene showcases off, you know, he's getting there and you've heard this stomping throughout the film, but you have no idea what it's in relation to. And you realize it's this rally straight after the detonations of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And Oppenheimer is walking, is, is saying his speech and he's having like these, these weird sounds kind of, it's kind of like he's having this panic attack because he realizes, holy shit, I've just done this terrible thing i've unleashed this power onto the world that is very 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 bad 
And as he is walking down from the stage uh, to the back, to the back room, he like steps over. He imagines himself like stepping over this like burnt corpse. And he like kind of like shivers and shudders at the sight. And the movie, the end of the movie, Emily Blunt, by the way, and Cillian Murphy do have just awesome performances. But Emily Blunt's character, the wife of Robert Oppenheimer, is like, why aren't you fighting back when he's trying to get this security clearance? Why are you doing this? Why are, why are you shaking hands with all of these scientists and all these people that are essentially damning you to this, uh, to this fate? You know, to you losing your security clearance, we're going to lose our money, we're going to lose our house, we're going to lose our status, our power that we've worked our entire lives for. And he is doing this kind of as like this payback for all of these things that he's done throughout his life, and especially uh, throughout kind of uh, World War II, because throughout the entirety of the film, before the detonations, he has been a huge proponent of this nuke, of, of this weapon. He's like, we're going to build it, and we're going to use it. We're going to build it, and we're going to use it, and we're going to, and it's going to be this huge, successful thing, and we're going to, we're, we're excited to use it and all this good stuff, right? And so that day comes, that day happens, and his perspective completely changes on that reality. He's like, this is, this is ridiculous. This is too much power. It's not too much power. It's too dangerous of a power. Christopher Nolan talked about it in an interview, and it was kind of made a point throughout the first half of the film that the scientists didn't know. They couldn't completely rule out the possibility that just testing this, this weapon would essentially ignite the atmosphere. It, like the, uh, the bomb would keep exploding and that constant explosion would ignite the atmosphere and the, the atmosphere would burn up and the planet would essentially lose all of its cooling and we would die to like extreme heat. They couldn't rule out that possibility. And so when they were doing the Trinity test, which was the successful test in which they detonated a hydrogen bomb in the New Mexican desert, they were like, they were petrified that they were going to blow up the planet because they couldn't rule out that possibility. And... I, and at the end of the movie, it was, I think, the the guy that plays Albert Einstein was awesome. And uh, the usage of that scientist, of Albert Einstein, was just genius by Christopher Nolan. He's he's kind of like this, this awesome figure. He's German, and he escaped Germany at the, um, at the twilight of the Nazi regime. And he he's not taking part, and he's essentially one of the the world's most accredited scientists at that point in time, and he still is. He's like, he's one of the most, uh, most like he's one of the essentially the geniuses of our time, even though he was alive for you know like a uh, hundred years ago. But Albert Einstein is essentially recruited to be on Project Manhattan, and he declines, and I think. Oppenheimer, either from this conversation at the pond, which is constantly referenced throughout the film, and it's a very important uh, conversation, I think Oppenheimer realizes that all of the, that any weapon that is created will be used. And the end of the movie is kind of him having, is Cillian Murphy having this like horrified stare, like he, you know, like he's a thousand miles away, realizing that 
not only will his weapon, the hydrogen bomb, be used, but even more so, you know, nuclear weapons will be used in the future. And he is petrified at that fact because he realizes that this can and will potentially destroy the planet. And that's where the fucking movie ends. And it's just such an amazing movie. I had such a great time. Uh, you know, you may as well just give best actor to Cillian Murphy because nothing, nothing is as good as Oppenheimer. It's a fantastic drama. The last 30 to 40 minutes of the film, by the way, is like the best 30 to 40 minutes of any film I've ever seen in my entire life. I was shocked at how good it was. It was well worth the price of admission. I was consistently entertained throughout the three hour or really like two, two hour, 30, 40 minute block that I was watching the film in. And Robert Downey Jr., by the way, I haven't even talked about him. Robert Downey Jr. gives not just a serviceable um, performance. He gives a fantastic performance. Shout out to everybody that said Robert Downey Jr. can't act. And the final thing that I have to say about the film is that it seems as if in Hollywood there is this push and pull between like what makes money and what is uh, considered a great artistic film. And I always have this problem of of this perception that art cannot be entertaining when it comes to cinema. And I think that's just all wrong and that's just, you know, that's just incorrect. It's like art can be entertaining and entertainment can be artistic. And I, I feel like with the advent of, not even the advent, but really just the dominance that Marvel has had at the box office, there's been this push to essentially try to make more quote-unquote artistic pieces of cinema. And it just kind of leads to this weird pretentious creations that really do not take into account the viewer or really even have great execution of their vision or of the subject matter that they're covering, whether it's a drama, a comedy, uh, a thriller movie, a horror movie, uh, whatever the case may be. It just seems like that good cinematic shots and the stroke of the paintbrush, so to speak, and not the actual uh, concept of the painting is more is more valued. And what I mean by that is that in writing, for example, there is this thing called prose, where it's essentially your sentence structure and how beautiful your sentence structure is. Some people prefer having a very, very nice prose. Uh, instead of having a very, very good story in books, for example. Uh, and you'll see certain critics be able to be like, oh, this artist or this writer doesn't have good prose, and so their book is now, uh, is now what is it, uh, devalued. When in, reali when in reality, excuse me, the story is great, but they can't analyze the story because they're too focused on the prose or they don't care about the story because they want to focus on the prose and there's so many artists or excuse me there's so many writers that have average to above average level prose but have great storytelling that that kind of gets devalued because people are worried about prose which is the wrong thing that they're focused on and this is the exact thing that I'm talking about here with cinema where a lot of people are worried about cinematography instead of story and entertaining and, and entertainment and executing upon ideas 
And I think two examples of that were and are The Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, you look at like both of those films when when those films came out were essentially supposed to be the antithesis of Marvel films. And I remember watching both of those movies and falling asleep in like the first hour. And these are three hour long movies. And I went back to see what was all the hubbub about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I was like, let me just go back and watch that film and see what it was about. And I was like, this is Forrest Gump, except if Forrest Gump was bad. Right. This is like essentially a, uh, a historical fiction movie where it's set in, you know, 1930s, 1940s. What is it? 1940s, 50s, 60s Hollywood, somewhere around there, where it's essentially the the age of the Western. It's we're in, you know, just this time where Western movies and TV shows are formed and you follow the struggling actor. And I just felt that the story was just very boring and ridiculous. And some of the other things like some of the other artistic liberties, like thinking that a security car guard could fight and beat Bruce Lee was just fucking ridiculous. And that Bruce Lee was like this arrogant man and you had like his daughter come out and be like, this is a terrible depiction of my father. You had other friends of Bruce Lee that were like, yeah, this is a terrible depiction of Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee would literally kill this guy. And it's like, even in that context alone, that scene, which may have lasted like five to six, maybe seven or eight minutes, that scene with all of that context being known is like even way worse to watch now. And it's just, it's one of Quentin Tarantino's worst movies. To me, it's just like a below average, just hogwash of a film. And some of the things that people criticize Marvel over Christopher, not Christopher, uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino just deliberately does in that film. And it's just like, bro, I don't understand why we're, why, why we're juiced up about this film. But, Christopher Nolan, I think I remember people saying that this is his magnum opus, this is his greatest film ever, and I could not understand it without seeing the film. And now that I have seen the film, I do understand it, I do get it, and I'm shocked at just the level of execution, the level of perfection that Christopher Nolan has has essentially accomplished with this film, and just how, I mean, how rare. This level of detail, this level of craftsmanship, this level of cinema is, I, I mean, my mind was blown away. Absolutely blown away. I mean, I don't think I've been this blown away since I saw the first Godfather and specifically the wedding scene where the daughter is, um, is, is outside singing and dancing with her fiance, currently husband, and uh, Don Corleone is in his office in this dark, shadowy room with his uh, with his capos, and he's taking essentially in his uh, consigliere. I'm not Italian, so I can't speak the language. His consigliere, his consulares. So it's like consulares. Something I I don't know what it is, but it's essentially his right hand man, and he's just he's essentially just doing business, and he's doing the shadow side of this business. Uh, that he owns, he's, he's taking in requests, you know, like he's a, a Chapman or something like that. And it's just this, and it shows just the three different perspectives, right? Kind of this happy perspective of his sister and kind of this like unassuming manner of, hey, his sister is, uh, hey, the daughter is getting married. The son, Michael, the prodigal son returns and Michael Corleone, who is kind of the odd man out, 
but really he is the best suited son for the job. And the interesting thing about it is about Michael Corleone is that Michael is like there's this other TV show called Succession where like everybody's seen Succession, of course. But uh, but the interesting thing about Succession is all of the kids, Shiv, Logan, not is it Logan? Shiv, no. Roman, Kendall, and I forgot his name. Um, the guy from Ferris Bueller, his character, I forgot his name. But they have like all of these characters come in and have different characteristics of Logan Roy, but none of them really are what he says in one of the final scenes that is characters in the TV show. None of them are killers. Michael is a killer. And unlike his brothers or his sister, Michael understands the sacrifices that he has to make in order to attain and maintain this power. And he does. And I think that just The Godfather is one of the greatest films ever. And I, I thought that I would never be blown away like that ever again. And I was when I saw Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, long story short, great film. Talked about it for almost 40 minutes. We're going to spend the next like couple of minutes <clears throat> talking about Taylor Swift and Kendrick Lamar and all that good stuff. By the way, cannot believe I've been talking about this for so long that literally the race is about to start. They're playing the national anthem for Hungary, I think, right now. So that should be a whole lot of fun. Anyways, I mean, hell, let's... Apparently, by the way, Barbie is like a good film. I've seen people bitch about that movie for the last couple of uh, days, but apparently, I mean, it's it is fucking banging right now, all things considered, because literally, it's it's trending at like ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes, with like twenty five hundred audience scores. It's like, I mean, it's fucking popping off. Apparently, it's a great fucking film. So it looks like I gotta go see that. And some of the trailers, I was like, eh, this looks all right. I'm not going to probably go see it. And then it's just like, no. I remember when I was going to go buy my Oppenheimer tickets, tickets, I saw so many people in pink dresses and pink shirts and pink on pink on pink. Jesus Christ. So where should I begin? Let's, um, because I'll just breeze through some. I'll, I'll go back and forth. I'll play ping pong with Kendrick Lamar and Taylor Swift. Two of really the greatest artists of our era. Kendrick Lamar. Rapper from Compton, USA. A little bit over a year ago. Came out with the album. Really an attempt at essentially creating his magnum opus. Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. Really a great album, I would say. As far as I'm concerned, it does have a little bit of a dud here and there uh, in regards to some of the concepts. Some concepts fall flat on their face. But I think the first half of it is such a fantastic half. It's such a fantastic run versus, for example, the second half, which is kind of an the quality, in my opinion, kind of goes down uh, in in some of not the not the quality in the music, but the quality of the execution of the concepts of the music, and it's a little bit of of a shame because there's some really really awesome things that he's playing with here, and um, it just it kind of just sucks that some of um, 
some things just weren't done better because this probably, and I think I said this on Thursday, I said that this probably could have been his best album ever, especially with just the first half. I think that that first half was probably his greatest run ever. And we'll listen to, we'll listen to three, three songs, three songs from Kendrick Lamar. And we'll talk about it. Here's a, here's die hard by Kendrick Lamar. And then we'll switch to Taylor Swift. We'll listen to six songs total, but three from each artist. Here's die hard Kendrick Lamar. I pop the pain away, I slide the pain away, I pop the pain away, I slide the pain away. I hope I'm not too late to set my demons straight. I know I made you wait, but how much can you take? I hope you see the God in me, I hope you can see. And if it's up, stay down for me, yeah. Sherry, Sherry, Cocoa Bar, Trust you, don't judge me. I'm a diehard, it gets ugly. Too passionate, it gets ugly. I'm afraid a little you relate but not have faith a little how my take my time ain't no saving face this time I hope I'm not too late to set my demons straight I know I made you wait but how much can you take I hope you see the God in me I hope you can see and if it's up stay down for me Make me, make me. 
pray for London Yeah Cause if I want it all without you involved I guess it's all for nothing YouTube. Sorry about that. <clears throat> Getting a YouTube ad. YouTube Sunday ticket ad, <clears throat> to be exact. And so, the cool thing about Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, apparently, is that it's supposed to be kind of a double album where the concepts for Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers is and are that the first half of the album is kind of him. It's kind of the therapeutic side. He's going to therapy. He is introspective about certain things that have happened in his life, certain things that have caused him to be this way. And also he gets really, really introspective with the next song that we're about to listen to father time in one of the best, I think, self-reflective songs I've ever listened to in my entire life. And really, it, he goes on this really, really awesome run of United in Grief, N95, Worldwide Steppers, Die Hard, Father Time, Rich the Interlude, Rich Spirit, We Cry Together, Purple Hearts, and that's the first half of the album. And then the second half starts with Count Me Out, which I think we'll listen to. And uh, then it kind of just goes all over the place with some of the execution of some of the songs as well. And I mean, there's some really, really awesome songs, but I think the quality in the execution is lacking in regards to the second half of the uh, of the album versus the first half. And it is definitely a departure from a lot of the music that Kendrick Lamar has made over the last decade. And I remember... Kendrick Lamar, not even I remember, but Kendrick Lamar is one of those artists that really isn't, I would say, radio friendly in the sense of he just doesn't have like a bunch of music that you can blast in the club and that you can dance to and that has like nice bass with some nice melodies and things of that nature. Nor do I think it's as, for example, intellectual as people want to make it out to be where people say, mm, if you're smart, then you listen to Kendrick Lamar. And it's just... I think his music is very self-expressive and he uses music like a lot of great artists. He uses it as a tool to express himself. And there, there is, and I don't think he uses necessarily music. I don't think he, he makes his music in a very mainstream uh, aesthetic. I think he just makes music in the style and in the format that he wants to make music in, if that makes sense, to be able to essentially make the best vision for his art that he possibly can. And at times that, for people like me, for example, that can like turn me off to uh, some of his music, as well as it can turn off a lot of other people to his music. 
But I I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think I said this last year, but I and if I didn't, I should have. And what I should have said was, even though I don't necessarily like the vision, and this is when I was like, oh, this is a terrible album. This is like the first time that I listened to it. What I probably should have said last year was, I don't like what Kendrick Lamar is doing on this album. And again, this is the first time that I listened to it. I, I can appreciate it more now that I've listened to it like four times, maybe five times or something like that. What I should have said was, I can appreciate the music. I, I can appreciate the attempt. I disagree with the attempt, but I appreciate artists attempting different things. And I said that with Lil Uzi Vert's album that I kind of like listened to. I think I listened to some tracks. Oh, no, this isn't the first time that we've done Music Matters. And like since my return, this is just the first time in like three or four weeks. I apologize. But what I should have said back then was I can appreciate the attempt, just like I appreciated little Uzi Vert's attempt at music, at, uh, at doing some very, very different things with his newest album as well. Moving on to Taylor Swift. So Taylor has been on kind of this tear of re-releasing certain tracks or certain not tracks but albums the newest one that she released about two or three weeks ago is speak now it is taylor's version it is in my opinion some tracks some strong songs are not as good as the original unfortunately i i felt like fearless a lot of the tracks on fearless taylor's version kind of benefited from a little bit of a facelift, in my opinion, because her voice was more mature than when she was essentially a teenager. Her technique was a lot better. And there's certain themes that she was able to cover in those songs were better and are better with a more mature voice, a more mature, mature not being like, uh, like she's more emotionally mature, but like, maturated she has aged she knows what she's doing she knows how to do it and so she has better control and better execution of some of the ideas that she had on her original album and i felt that fearless taylor's version was just definitively better than her original album uh the one the non-taylor's version and i felt that it was superior the same thing i felt with red I felt Red was a little bit more in line with, I felt, I felt you wouldn't, I felt like you, you could listen to both. I felt like you could listen to Red. I felt like you could listen to Fearless and still have a very enjoyable experience. Speak Now is a little bit different because there's some tracks like Sparks Fly and we'll listen to it. <clears throat> I feel like there are some tracks like Sparks Fly and other tracks that just are not as great as the first run as the first tracks or as the original version not the first but the original version of those songs and i think that speak now and this will be a very very interesting concept later on in uh in her discography when she remakes 1989 in reputation because i think that it will be very very interesting to see exactly it, the artistic liberties that she has on some of these songs and also the execution of some of the songs and of the albums as a whole when we get into Reputation and especially 1989 to see exactly how she tackles it. Because especially 
those two albums are kind of a representation of who she is as an artist, as well as Lover, obviously. Those three albums are representations of who she is as an artist. She is Taylor Swift. She has the backing of her record company. She is not an unknown name to the public. She has the experience. She knows what she wants. This is who she is as an artist. Like these three albums are Taylor Swift. And I felt like Fearless, especially in a little bit of red, did not necessarily represent who Taylor Swift is currently as an artist. And it's it, it was really interesting to see, speak, or listen to speak now and be like, oh, this is kind of like some of the themes that she's playing with here are some of the themes that she is kind of known for and the execution upon them um, that she had in like the early 2010s uh, ages quite well versus this album. But uh, this whole album was essentially made or re-released or remade, depending on how you want to define it, in an attempt to reclaim her music back from the people that own her masters. And I am always going to be for artists reclaiming their music and having and owning their music and then selling their art to whoever they want to sell it to, whether that's, you know, a consumer like me who has vinyl of Taylor Swift. Hold on, I'm watching the launch of Formula One. Hold on. Hamilton gets away. Great. Oh my God. He's gone. Hamilton's gone. Lando has the insight. Only gonna turn one for Stafford. Overtakes Hamilton. Oh my god. Oh my god. There's already crash on turn one. Lewis just lost two places. He's now in third. He's trying to get the inside line. The McLarens are just better than the Mercedes because they're better than the Mercedes. Lewis is uh, Lewis is in fourth place, but that was kind of destined to happen because the Mercedes is is just not up to par with the McLarens. Both McLarens get through Lewis, even though Lewis had a great start. But then the Red Bull of Max Verstappen also just overtakes Lewis Hamilton as well, because again, Lewis is in a worse car. He's on worse tires. Oh, thank God. There was no turn, turn one incident regarding Lewis versus Max, but it's so disappointing to see the Mercedes and Lewis, who had a great qualifying, who had a great stint, who's on the worst tires. He, he could not have been on the soft tires today. Ah, oh, it sucks to see Lewis just lose literally three places in like the first three turns, but it would like it, it's it, it was gonna happen. It was like there was nothing that he could do about it, <clears throat> and so they're gonna have to rely on the strategy because the fucking Mercedes is a shit box. <laughs> Anyways, going back to Taylor Swift and the execution of of her album and all that good stuff. So we'll listen to some of Taylor Swift. We'll listen to mine, Sparks Fly, and, or I mean, it could be, uh, yeah, we'll listen to Sparks Fly and Back to December or something like that. We'll see. Anyways, ooh, George Russell gained like four places on five now on like the opening two laps. Here's mine, Taylor Swift. Uh, uh, uh. Working part-time, waiting tables Left a small town, never looked back I was 
was a flight risk with a fear of falling wondering why we bother with love if it never lasts i say can you Taylor Swift. Really, really awesome track. <clears throat> One of my favorite things just in general about Taylor Swift, and I constantly talk about it, and I constantly refer to it. I love, 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 love her ability to combine really, really awesome melodies with really, really awesome lyricism. It's easily... Easily one of my favorite things about her 
It's been one of my favorite things about her, especially after listening to Folklore and Evermore. And it's kind of just this consistent surprise that I've, I said that not I've, I was like, I found this artist that that's really, really awesome. It's just like that. This artist is just so capable and able of combining melodies and lyricism. It's so enjoyable. It's, it's, it's so enjoyable to listen to Taylor and a lot of her music, especially music that I just have never listened to ever before. The more music that I listen to, the more I just become a fan. And again, 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 it's just always, 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 always been just like this. I've always said this about covering the same subject matter and the same topics. I'm a huge fan of people that will cover the exact same topics over and over and over again, but will make those topics interesting and entertaining for the viewer. I don't mind if people talk about the exact same thing as long as they are entertaining or as long as their ability to cover the exact same thing, as long as that is actually entertaining. And so to see Taylor kind of talk about heartbreak and love and betrayal and all of these things and all of these kind of... uh and all of these relationship, you know, aesthetics over and over and over again, and for it to not necessarily be boring, at least to me, is is awesome. It's awesome to me. Sparks Fly is coming up next, but Father Time uh, by Kendrick Lamar, because we're kind of bouncing back and forth between the two artists. But again, this is on the first half of Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, so this would be the Mr. Morale part. Father Time is probably his best song ever, where Kendrick Lamar is very self-reflective self of his life with his father and kind of the toxic masculinity within, uh, within kind of his childhood in regards to his father and the treatment of his father, things of that nature, and something that he kind of struggles with into his adulthood and maybe even affects his own ability to be a parent himself. He kind of implies it. Father Time, Kendrick Lamar, Mr. Morale and the Big Seppers. You really need some therapy. Real nigga need no therapy. No, fuck no, you talking no. about? You sound stupid as shit. Shit, everybody's stupid. Yeah, well, you need to talk to somebody. Reach out to Eckhart. I come from a generation of home invasions And I got daddy issues, that's on me Everything the four was that taught me May have is buried deep, that man knew a lot But not enough to keep me past them streaks My life is a plot, twisted from directions that I can't see Daddy issues, all across my head Told me fuck a foul, I'm teary-eyed Wanna throw my hands, I won't think out loud A foolish pride, if I lose again Won't go in the house, I stayed outside Laughing with my friends, they don't know my life Daddy issues made me learn losses I don't take those well. Mama 
mama said that boy is exhausted. He said, go fuck yourself. If he give up now, that's gonna cost you. Life's a bitch. You could be a bitch or step out the margin. I got up quick. I'm charging baskets and falling backwards, trying to keep balance. Oh, this the part where mental stability meets talent. Oh, this the party breaks my humility. Just for practice, tactics we learn together. So it loses forever, daddy. Early morning wake ups, practicing on day offs. Tough love, bottled up, no chase on me. No chase on me. No chase on me. No chase on me. No chase. Early morning wake ups, practicing on day offs. Tough love. Bottled up, no chase on me, no chase on me, no chase on me, no chase on me, no chase on I got daddy issues, that's on me. Looking for I love you. Really empathizing for my relief. A child that grew accustomed. Jumping up when I scrape my knee. Cause if I cried about it, he surely tell me not to be weak. Daddy issues, hit my emotions. Never express myself. Man should never show feelings. Being sensitive never helped. His mama died, I asked him why he going back to work so soon. His first reply was son that's laughing. Bills got no silver spoon. Daddy issues, fuck everybody. Go get your money, son. Protect yourself. Trust nobody. Only your mama knows. This made relationships seem cloudy, never attached to none. So if you took some likings around me, I might reject the love. Daddy issues kept me competitive. That's a fact, nigga. I don't give a fuck what's the narrative. I am that nigga. When Kanye got back with Drake, I was slightly confused. Guess I'm not mature as I think. Got some healing to do. Egotistic, zero giving fucks, and a be specific need assistance with the way I was brought up. What's the difference when your heart is made of stone and your mind is made of gold and your tongue is made of sword? But it may weaken your soul My niggas ain't got no daddy Grow up overcompensating Learn shit about being a man And disguise it as being gangster I love my father for telling me To take off the gloves Cause everything he didn't want Was everything I was Until my partners that figured it out Without a father I salute you May your blessings be neutral Till your toddlers is crucial They can't stop us if we see the mistakes Till then, let's give the women a break Grown men with daddy issues Early morning wake-ups, practicing on day-offs, tough love, bottled up, no chase on me, no chase on me, no chase on me, no chase on me, no chase on Father Time, great song, I've never, I've never really heard of anything like that ever, ever in my entire life, ever, I've never been put... I've never heard it been put like that where men have daddy issues. It's always been girls have daddy issues. But if you think about it, if you think about it, there's so many men that seem to have a lot more issues, I guess, adjusting with certain parts of life because of, I guess, just this expectation to be a man and kind of what that means and what that doesn't mean and things of that nature. So just... That song in general, as well as uh, as well as just some of the themes that they were playing on, or he Kendrick was playing on, uh, with that song was just awesome. As I just saw like three people come into the pits. It's still Verstappen from Verstappen, Theashri, Norris, then Hamilton, then Leclerc, or then Leclerc, then Signs, then Perez, Alonso, Hulkenberg, Russell is now in the top ten, getting eight places back. Awesome job by Russell. He probably is going to get driver of the day. So 
Sorry. I'm still watching Formula One. Anyways. Sparks fly. Second track off of Speak Now. There's two versions of it. I mean, now there is. But Sparks fly. The Taylor's version. There is a noticeable. I don't want to say. I don't want to say there's a noticeable drop off in quality. Because I don't think it's a bad song, but there is no, there is a noticeable drop off. There is like, there is like a noticeable. Yes, this isn't as good as the first one or more specifically, I would prefer it to the first one. But I don't think this is a bad rendition of the song. Sparks Fly. And by the way, I mean, I'm shocked at how much music she's created over the last three years. Really, four years, if you go all the way back to 2019, it was Lover in 2019, Folklore and Evermore in 2020, and in 2021, it was Red, 2022, it was Midnight's, and then 2023, we have not only the Era's tour, but also Speak Now, Taylor's version. That's six albums that she's made in the last four years. That's like 1.3 or something like that albums essentially per year for the last four years. So she's been a very, very busy bee. Sparks Flight coming up next.
right? Pretty awesome rendition of Sparks Fly. Taylor doesn't really, Taylor really doesn't cheat you out of a musical performance. Again, it's not a bad performance in any way, stretch, or form. It's just not as good as I think the first one. And she takes some artistic liberties with it that I don't think pan out as well as, for example, the first uh, version of this, of that song specifically. And if you listen to both, okay, if you listen to both of them, right, both songs, both versions of that exact same song, you'll be like, oh, the first one was better than the second one. But if you never listened to the first one, you'll never kind of know that the first one is better than the second one. It's all just because you listen. It's all just it's all just like the subtle differences that she has in the first one over the second one. I still think both are just fine songs. Not fine as in like, eh, they're mad, but I think they're both good songs. But I think one is better than the other. Count Me Out, final Kendrick Lamar song, and this is kind of the, really the transition from the first half of the album to the second half. From Count Me Out, or from Mr. Morale to the Big Steppers and kind of him moving forward and past his um, his kind of like um, introspection and kind of trying to put some of these themes into practice. And this is kind of his attempt into putting some of these themes that he's been talking about on the album into practice with uh, the Big Steppers. So here's kind of the first track after the therapy in... Count me out. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, uh, just realized that, uh, literally my computer's audio was, let me replay that. I apologize. We may not know which way to go on this dark road. Mr. Duckworth. All of these holes. Make it difficult. Session 10. Breakthrough. One of these lives, I'ma make these right with the wrongs I done. That's one of you not with the father, son, till then I fight. Rain on me, put the blame on me. Got guilt, got hurt, got shame on me. Got six magazines that's aimed at me. Done every magazine was fame to me. It's a game to me with a bedroom at. Sleep, I ain't never had a fast with that. What's fair when the hearts and the words don't reach? What's fair when the money don't take things back? It's rare when somebody take your dreams back. I care too much, wanna share too much. In my head too much, I shut down too. I ain't there too much. I'm a complex soul, they layered me up, then broke me down. The morality's dust, I lack. 
can trust This time around I trust myself Please everybody else but myself All else fails I was myself Outdone fear outdone myself This year you better one yourself Mask on the babies, mask on the eyewear Mask in the neighborhood stores you shop But a mask won't hide who you are inside Look around the realities carved in lies Wipe my ego, dodge my pride Look myself in the mirror, Amity feel Ain't seen nothing scarier I fought like a pit bull terrier Blood I shed could fill up aquariums Tell all my angels carry them Every emotion been deprived Even my strong points couldn't survive If I didn't learn to love myself Forgive myself a hundred times Dog I love when you count me out 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 Fuck it up, fuck it up, fuck it up, fuck it up, fuck it up How you gonna wear my shorts when the lines run deep? How you gonna bend your love when the bad don't sleep? Deep beat crash out feelings in the middle of the street vroom, vroom. Fuck it up, fuck it up, fuck it up, fuck it up, fucking it up When you was at your lowest, tell me where the hoes was at When you was at your lowest, tell me where the bros was at 3.30 in the morning, scroll through the call up Ain't nobody but the mirror looking for the fall off I love when you count me out I love when you count me out I love when you count me out Let me tell you about the woman I know That's my baby I know karma like to follow her strong I know millionaires that feel alone Anytime I couldn't find God I still could find myself through a song Many find their life in the phone Fuck it up, fuck it up, fuck it up, fuck it up, fuck it up You said I feel better if I just worked hard without lifting my head up That left me fed up, you made me worry I wanted my best version, but you ignored me Then changed the story then change the story Good energy in the room, drop the location, please Anybody at it for the one when I'm frustrated, Anybody at it for the one when I'm frustrated. Trying to keep my good conscience in rotation Thoughts in my head, they living there with no Trying to keep my good I made a decision Never give you my feelings Fuck what you from Fuck what you from a distance I put it on the devil when they fall short I put it on my ego, Lord of all lords Sometimes I fall for I love when you count me out 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 My name is in your mouth Fuck it up, fuck it up, fuck it up, fuck it up, fuck it up Miss Regress, I believe that you don't need Miss Regress, can you please exit out my own? Miss Regret, I think I'm better off alone. Miss Regret, I got this deep regret. Some things I can't forget. Lord knows I tried my best. You said it's not my best. I came about my flesh. Some things I must confess. Spoke my truth, paid my debt. Can't you see I'm a wreck? Let me lose. I digress. This is me, and I'm blessed. 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 Anybody fighting through? the stress anybody fighting through the count me out Kendrick Lamar Mr. Morale big steppers
Some really, really great tracks on it. Really, in my opinion, I think part of... I think, I think really the inclusion of Kodak Black does and will kind of draw the, the album a little bit down. And I think some of the inclusions of Kodak are just kind of like, they're fine, I guess. Especially with the perspective now. I thought that last year, the, the inclusion of Kodak, I got him. I got it, but now it's just like, I don't know. Now I feel like it does, like the, f the further and further we get, I'm like, what was he thinking on that? But then it's not just that Kodak Black was on the album and some of the things that he's that he did and has done isn't necessary, especially because he just keeps kind of fucking up. And that whole collaboration with Takashi 69 was just weird, but also just with Kodak Black. Just that whole second half of the album was just it was not as good as the first. And it kind of reminded me of Thriller, where there's some really iconic legendary parts of thriller the michael jackson album that's just you know rare 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 stuff and then you kind of get to other parts of it and you're just like wow this this does not keep up with you know pyt billy jean thriller the title track among other songs on the album and you're just like dude i i just i don't understand why these songs are just it's not even that some of the songs on Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, if we kind of just, we kind of just use the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just reading some stuff on my TV about Formula One. But it's not just that in Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers that some of the songs in the second half are bad. It's just that they just cannot keep up with the first half. And it's very, very obvious. And there's this kind of interesting pushback, subtle, but not so subtle, pushback on Kendrick Lamar. I think as a hip-hop artist, and just as an artist in general, within the African-American community, where I remember I saw this video of guys watching or listening to Kendrick Lamar, and they were talking about how, and a lot of people talk about Kendrick Lamar as if he should have essentially music that should be played in the club and that he doesn't, they kind of just don't fuck with him. And I just, I don't know, I think that's a very, very limited way to look at his music especially some of his best music as well where it's just like in music in general I don't think music is just supposed to be used as like white noise or background uh noise to essentially drown something out I think that there is like an artistic expression to it but at the exact same time there is this pushback against Kendrick Lamar because he doesn't make music that sounds kind of uh like mainstream hip-hop even though that this kind of is probably in a lot of ways is the album that does sound very mainstream in regards to some of the things that he does. But regardless, back to December, the song about Taylor Lautner on Taylor Swift's album Speak Now. And yes, I just checked my computer audio to make sure that it's working. Time to see me How's life? 
back to December, Taylor Swift. Such an interesting song. That song, that one, really. That song was kind of about her mistreatment of Taylor Lautner, who in the Taylor Swift universe is like seen as like a hero because he was like one of the only nice guys uh, to Taylor, and she treated him terribly. And that's why she is like, that's why she wrote that song. And it's such an interesting song. And it's such a great song, too. It's one of the best songs on the album, among others. Of course, Dear John, which is about John Mayer. But I think Speak Now, and I think the interesting thing about these albums is, A, is that, and Taylor is essentially one of the biggest artists on the planet. So it's just like this re-releasing works for her, but probably won't really work for everyone else however it's always this interesting kind of will she won't she make an album or have renditions of her previous songs that are as good as her original and i think in some ways and also taking some artistic liberties as she did as she rewrote some of the um some of the lyrics for certain tracks on the on um i forgot which song it was but it's fascinating to me to see whether or not she can or will take artistic liberties to some of her previous songs and or to see if any changes that happen or that she'll make or that she does make, I guess, um, like what changes she'll make and then also the actual performances themselves. Like I think Fearless was her best attempt at doing this and then I think Red was very very good as well but then this one was just i think it was lacking in some regards but the songs like dear john and also even uh speak now or not speak now excuse me um god man i'm tired i've been up way too long but what was it not just not dear john but back to december dear john and mine are all just like really really awesome renditions of the original songs. Anyways, tomorrow, going to talk about Formula One. Looks like Lewis probably can't ink it out. Mercedes is having problems with the car after Lewis's, Lewis Hamilton's just amazing, immaculate qualifying, and he's down into fourth. He may not get a podium. It's kind of like what happened last week in Silverstone where the Mercedes just wasn't up to par and up to snuff with any of the, uh, with any of the, with, with the McLarens, or the Red Bulls, and Lewis is struggling out there, and so is George. George just got passed by Sergio Perez, who was starting in ninth. I feel bad for Sergio Perez in some ways, but then in other ways, it's just like, dude, you have the best race car on the planet. You can't beat Mercedes. I mean, technically, he just passed a Mercedes, but he can't consistently beat Mercedes, and this is going to be a three-stop race potentially, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Regardless, I'll see you Monday. We'll talk about Formula One. I think I'm I'm almost done watching the first press conference of the Washington Commanders, and so we'll be able to talk more in depth about that, as well as some other things, as well as like just straight up training camp is kind of getting underway, so we'll be able to talk about the Jets training camp and other things. Anyways, I'm peacing out. I'll see you tomorrow. Winning Force Podcast.